listening to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, founder and editor of Whosoever. Thank you for joining us. Imagine a world where the gay people are the majority and straight people are the oppressed minority. Author and poet J.G. Woodward has imagined such a scenario in her new book, Over the Course of a Lifetime. Maybe it would be better to somehow make straight people identify with what it's like. Somehow if they could relate to what it's like on a day-to-day basis, they would want for us to have the same life. Playwright and actor Peterson Toscano is famous for his play Doing Time in the Homo Nomo halfway house that skewers ex-gay ministries. Now he's turned his queer eye on the Bible where he sees many transgender characters. Clearly there are certain things that men do, certain things that women do. So there are people in both the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures who break those rules. They are gender transgressors. We'll hear more from both J.G. and Peterson coming up, and we'll wrap it up with a little holy humor. As many of you may have noted, it's been a while since I've put up a podcast. That's because I've been busy out and about promoting my new book, Bulletproof Faith, A Spiritual Survival Guide for Gay and Lesbian Christians. I've met some fabulous people in places like Knoxville, Tennessee, Asheville, North Carolina, Houston, Texas, Anaheim, California, Atlanta, Georgia, and the latest group at the South Carolina Book Festival in Columbia, South Carolina. The reaction to the book has been phenomenal. I've heard from so many people who have told me that the book has really helped them in their faith journey and given them the tools they need to live authentically in their sexual orientation or gender identity, despite what religious critics might say. The book also, I'd like to let you know, was named one of the best spiritual books of 2008 by the website Spirituality and Practice. You can learn more about the book, download a free 25-page study guide for personal or group use, see some pictures of some of my book tour events, and also download some audio from some of those events at www.bulletproofbook.com. I'm also hosting a series of teleseminars where we're studying the book together over the phone. We've had a couple of sessions already, and you're welcome to join us. Just click on the study group tab when you get to the website. And, of course, I'm still on the lookout for other places to do workshops, readings, and signings. If you're interested in having me come to your church or a local bookstore to speak or sign books, you can drop me an email at editor at whosoever.org. Also, I'd like to let you know that I'm now blogging on a regular basis for a website called Religion Dispatches. I'm using this opportunity to explore the intersection of politics and religion, and you can check that out at religiondispatches.org. Oh, and one more thing. Thanks to Jesus MCC in Indianapolis, Indiana, Whosoever now has daily devotionals back on the website. Go to whosoever.org slash devotions. From there, you can even subscribe to the RSS feed and get devotions sent to you every day. Poet J.G. Woodward has an impressive family tree. She's a descendant of Edgar Allan Poe, General Robert E. Leap, and President George Washington. Her first historical fiction novel is called Over the Course of a Lifetime. J.G. holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Psychology and a Master's of Education degree in Rehabilitation Counseling from Kent State University. She's a certified rehabilitation counselor with 20 years of experience in career counseling, and she's testified as an expert in vocational rehabilitation in a multitude of courtroom settings. J.G. is also also the author of the nonfiction book Cut the Fluff for Job Seekers, Just Tell Me What I Don't Know, and two books of poetry, Tumultuous Journey, Poems Along the Way, and the sequel, Poems Beyond the Journey. She was a winner in the J.B. Solomon Poetry Contest, and several of her poems are included in that Publishing House's anthology poetry book. J.G. makes her home in Akron, Ohio, where she's known as the People's Poet due to her ability to reach a diversity of readers. I asked J.G. to give us some background about her latest book. Basically, I had uh, started out uh, writing poetry. 
and uh, really felt like there was a, a story to tell with uh, fiction uh, as far as what it's like being a minority in uh, the freest country on the planet. And uh, I thought that rather than stand up on our soapboxes and say, you know, we as gay people deserve the same rights as straight people, we deserve to get married, we deserve uh, all these things that you take for granted, rather than stomping up and down and slamming my fist on the table and demanding these things, maybe it would be better to somehow make straight people identify with what it's like. That somehow if they could relate to what it's like on a day-to-day basis, they would want us to have the same rights. It wouldn't be that they have to give us a handout, you know, the way that they see it. It would be more that how could they not want to advocate for us and allow us to have the same rights that they do. And so it was kind of a reverse psychology approach. I thought that perhaps if I could make the story about them, about straight people, that maybe they would get it. You know, just the little things that we overlook every day. And, and the book... It's called Over the Course of a Lifetime, and it really does take the trajectory of a, of a couple, a heterosexual couple who are deprived of their rights um, through their lifetime. Tell us a little bit about how the book goes. Really, uh, it was kind of funny because I, w- I sat down to write this book, and I had the concept in my mind of, you know, a historical fiction piece, and that the only thing that would be different would be that, that 90% of the population was gay. And so if that was the case, then the minorities would be straight people. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down to write this, you know, historical fiction piece with uh, people that would be like in their 80s now uh, and what it was like coming up for them as an oppressed minority of straight people. And so I would be sitting and I would be writing and then I would uh, write something like uh, the main character, his name is Marcus, that uh, Marcus went out to the garage to help his uh, mother work on the car, and that would turn into, well, what kind of car did one drive in the 1940s? And so that would turn into this whole, you know, research on, you know, <laughs> what kind of cars did they drive? And so it was a lot of research on my part that I had to do as far as making it a little more true to form. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was an interesting aspect of writing the book that I wasn't planning on. I guess the one thing that, that sort of uh, was a little uncomfortable for me reading the book was that you're portraying gay people as, as just as oppressive as their straight counterparts would be if they had the power. <laughs> it's an uh, interesting thought. I never really thought about it that way. I um, I would like to think that we wouldn't be that way. But like I told you before, I was trying to write it as though everything has happened the way it has over the past right, right. years. Nothing is, is changed. And uh, so if that were the case, then of course, if the only thing that was different was the majority of people were gay, that if we're trying to do it from a historical fiction standpoint, that that would, in fact, be the way it was, that, that in fact, it's the minority, the straight people, that would spend their entire lives being oppressed and denied rights. So, yeah, maybe I, mean, I would like to think that, you know, from this point forward, obviously, that even if we were the majority, that we would allow straight people to have the same rights as did we, but... Yeah, so that was that was how that came about. Well, it's interesting. You're trying to you're trying to get the other side to have this cognitive dissonance and feel uncomfortable. But boy, I was completely uncomfortable. It's like, gee, gay people are bastards. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I think that's that's the point. And this, that's, yeah. that's the idea is that they read this and they think about you know their nephew who's gay or their best friend's sister who's gay, and all of a sudden they get it for yeah. once in their lives that you know, you know, yeah, maybe it's just that. I can't put my partner on my health insurance. Oh, yeah, well, whatever. Well, what about when that person, you know, becomes terminally ill? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's just really, um, I just think that 
it all seems like little baby things until you put them all together into one lifetime. And over the course of that lifetime, you experience all of the horrors of being, not having the same civil rights as everybody else. Could you imagine telling an African-American man that he cannot marry a woman because she's Caucasian? Or if they're going to be so good as to allow him to marry, that's fine, but mm-hmm. he can't put her on her insurance policy. Right. right. I mean, it's just... It's completely ridiculous when we look at it that way, but that is our reality. The one thing I, I don't see that, that you that you sort of bring into the historical part of, of the novel, though, is the religious piece. The, 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 it is the straight community in our reality that uses the religious piece to keep us down, but it doesn't. you didn't turn that around. Why was that not a piece in there? My hope with the book was to appeal as, to as many people as possible. I mean, truly my focus is to make it mainstream so that, you know, the straight person saying at a cocktail party says, you know, have you read over the course of a lifetime by J.G. Woodward? Oh, you're missing out. You really need to read this piece. And mm-hmm. I was afraid if I started reading more and more and more controversial topics in it, it would push readers away rather than draw them in. And what I did address was at the beginning of the book that it just was kind of a fluke that the clerics decided that it was heterosexuality that was a step in the book. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, I just kind of addressed that right at the get-go to say that's how it came to be. That's what they decided, mm-hmm. that, you know, it was a sin, and so that is the way it has been forevermore. And you have come to an agreement with the Human Rights Campaign that when someone buys this book that they receive a dollar donation. Tell us uh, about that and how that came about. I wrote the novel, and it just, it really just, uh, the people that I just share it with, uh, they were moved by it, said, you absolutely must go forward with this, and truly, what would mean more to me than, than my own success would be to make a difference in this community, to make a difference in the rights that we don't have as, uh, as gay people. And, um, and so I think that as far as my experience goes, the human rights campaign has been the mover and shaker of our community, the one that's brought about the most change. And so what I did was uh, thought that it would be great if we gave even a dollar for every book and paperback that we sold to the human rights campaign. And, you know, in, in the end, you know, if I've only sold, you know, a thousand, then at least they get a thousand dollars. And if we are able to make it mainstream, and we do turn it into a bestseller that people talk about over their um, cocktail parties, and it ends up, you know, selling a million copies, and we've gotten a million dollars for the human rights campaign. So I just, I'm really thrilled about that part of it, and you know, my dream is that it really will make a difference. And I noticed in your in your biography on the back of the book, it says that you're a descendant of Edgar Allan Poe, and and Robert E. Lee, and President George Washington. <laughs> what do you think they think of this book? Well, I think uh, Edgar Allan Poe was uh, so completely out of his mind that uh, was insane that he probably wouldn't mind it too much one way or another. He's proud that uh, I'm a writer. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and, uh, and George Washington, I don't know, I guess my hope would be, you know, he certainly went against the grain, you know, and did something very unpopular, which was to, you know, coordinated revolt. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe he would also think it was good. And uh, General Robert Lee, I'm sure, would tell me that I could uh, do a much better job of minding my uh, uh, manners and respecting my health. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> For more information on J.G. Woodward's book, Over the Course of a Lifetime, and her other books of poetry, visit her website, invinciblepublishing.ws.
haven't checked in with writer and actor Peterson Toscano since way back in 2006. He's most famous in our community for his one-man show called Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House that details the sometimes bizarre treatments he underwent during his 17 years in the ex-gay movement. He's been working steadily since then on other plays, including his latest play, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. I started our conversation by asking him to catch us up on what he's been doing since we last spoke. Wow. Since we last talked, uh, it's been a while. It has we been have a while. The X Gay Survivor Conference, <laughs> I right? I think so. We've had that since then, and uh, we've had regional X Gay Survivor events in Nashville, and Memphis, Denver, Barcelona. We um, have really built up the website beyondxgay.com, and I've retired my play, Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House. Um, and I'm actually training a new actor to uh, start performing it sometime in the fall. Wow, you know it's successful when you got to get somebody else to sing <laughs> for you. <laughs> That's great. But I, but I understand it's also available on DVD, though. It is. You can get it at QuakerBooks.org. Great. Well, tell us about your latest project. My latest project. Now, this was truly an artist project in that, you know, when, you, when you're an entertainer, you're looking for material that pleases the crowd. When you're an artist, often you're looking for stuff that pleases yourself. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm really interested in gender variance and the Bible. I met a number of trans people who just so impressed me, and I learned a lot from them. And I began looking at the Bible with gender lenses on, and also began to soak in the stories of trans people. And I wrote a play about transgender Bible characters. It's called Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. And so tell us how there can be transgender characters in the Bible. This has never been pointed out before. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of surprising because once you start looking at it, it becomes so painfully obvious, it's almost embarrassing. (laughs) Like, why didn't I see this? Well, we need to consider that that the, uh, the biblical text, the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, set down very stringent gender rules for gender presentation, gender roles. Clearly, there are certain things that men do, certain things that women do. So there are people in both the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures who break those rules. They are gender transgressors, and and they're also people who transcend gender. So, for instance, you have someone like Deborah, who is a poet, a prophet, a judge, and a warrior. Right, she was like the Xena of her day, <laughs> Jewish Xena. And she was female, for sure, but she wasn't like the other females around her. I mean, there's even an interesting distinction between her and Yael, uh, the woman who gets the tent peg that puts it through the head of the, the enemy, Sisera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny because when, uh, when Deborah is asked by her general to join them in the battle, because she must be a kick-butt warrior... <laughs> Uh, she says, okay, but, you know, I just want you to realize that since you asked this of me, the glory is going to go to a woman. Mm-hmm. And so reading it, one would think, oh, well, she's talking about herself. She's a bit egotistical, I guess. <laughs> but I guess if you're just such a kick-butt gal, why not? Sure. But in the end, that's not who she's talking about. She's talking about Yael. It's going to this other woman. Therefore, she's not really even technically referring to herself as a woman in this case. Um, not to take a w- women away from Bible stories, but there's something transgressive mm-hmm. uh, in, in the gender here, um, because we have never seen anyone um, like her since um, in, in the scriptures being this sort of warrior leader person. Definitely strong women in the Bible, but not in such a clearly male role. Right. And you also bring up... Uh 
the fact that there are Unix in the Bible, not the operating system, as you say. But <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and this is important because there are Unix literally throughout the scriptures, and they take on all kinds of amazing roles. They're, they're servants. They are uh, treasurers. They're assassins. I mean, they're important people. But a lot of people don't often have a mental image of what a eunuch would have looked like. Mm-hmm. These are male-bodied people who were castrated, sometimes at birth, sometimes a little bit later, but typically before puberty. So as a result, they don't have secondary sex characteristics that most other male-bodied people have. Their voices don't drop. They don't get the muscle structure that comes with the testosterone, the prominent brow, the face and body hair. They look and sound very differently from the men and women around them. In fact, the Hidras of India, uh, the eunuchs there, have often been referred to as the third sex. And as my main character often repeats, not male, not female, something in the middle or altogether different. And so it's important when we're reading these stories of, say, for instance, Queen Esther. And you look at the story of Queen Esther, try to take that story and take out all of the eunuchs. And you will quickly discover there is no story. The story, a story which doesn't mention God once, is littered with eunuchs. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're all over the place, and they're making all the magic happen. Sounds like Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, and, you know, so these are gender-different people. Now, we're not talking about orientation here. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's sleeping with who. Yeah. But we definitely know these are people who can slide in and out of gender. That's why the the eunuchs were able to go into the harem and help Esther out so much, even giving her beauty treatments. So they're even the hairdressers in the They are. The they're the people. assassins, they're hairdressers. I mean, they, they, you can't typecast them because, you know, they're treasurers. I mean, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch, this black male-bodied eunuch from um, Africa uh, who becomes one of the first Christian converts, mm-hmm. goes back and and establishes one of the earliest churches, a church that still operates today. And that's one of the most inspirational stories, I think, for transgender people as well as gay and lesbian people, is you know, that Philip can't think of a reason why this eunuch can't be baptized. And I wonder, since they were reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, mm-hmm. if in addition to looking at prophecies that may have concerned Jesus, if they also came to the prophecy about eunuchs, and perhaps they both came across it for the first time in their life, Um, Maybe it was something that wasn't often read, since eunuchs really wouldn't have been able to take full part in a temple life. Right. I mean, I think about that eunuch as an actor and as a playwright. He was devout. He went to temple. But as a eunuch, he would not have been able to go in where all the other men were going to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. He was an outsider, uh, and yet he was was devout to God, yet the system kept him as an outsider. Yeah. And that's a story we know all too well, unfortunately. Now, you say that the play came about because you were getting to know some transgender people. Is there a specific story of, 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 of inspiration behind this, this new play? Well, I was in England um, with uh, the group Courage UK that Jeremy Marks started, which was originally an ex-gay program, but then through a miraculous change that was not expected, they became a pro-gay uh, affirming uh, program. Well, hallelujah. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> and so they have a wonderful retreat every year, and uh, I was there doing a bibliodrama, which is a form of Bible study through drama, which is how I get a lot of my ideas. And one of the folks came to me and said, I found a gay character in the Gospels. I was like, really? Mm. That's very exciting. Who is this? And then he tells me about the man carrying the pitcher of water. 
says, he's gay. I'm like, well, why? Why would you say that? <laughs> he says, well, because it's a society where only women and children carried water. So that means he's gay. I'm like, um, no, I think that would make him trans, actually, because he's a man doing something that would be traditionally female. That's about gender, not about orientation. We can't be stealing trans people's stories That's from it. them. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought about that. And I was like, you know, I bet there are other people like that. And I did this whole midrash on this um, man carrying a pitcher of water and actually wove that story together with the story of a trans woman I met who told me how she decided to come out to her family as trans at Thanksgiving one year, mm. which did not end well. Mm. Uh, and I thought about that. Well, what if this man carrying a pitcher of water came out to um, her family at, on Passover and, uh, and as a transgressive act picks up the pitcher and walks out of the house still presenting as male, uh, taking on a very female role, which would have been shocking. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and if it was such a common practice when Jesus said, you know, you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water, well, they would have been following like 20 men. <laughs> That's so true. Common. It had to be something. <laughs> in fact, it was so uncommon and kind of transgressive that Matthew in his gospel, which is one of the more conservative gospels written to a more conservative Jewish audience, mentions the story but leaves out the detail that it was a man carrying a pitcher of water. Mm -hmm. He just says, Jesus said you will go and find a certain man. Follow him. And I think he thought, well, maybe my audience isn't quite ready for this. <laughs> That's true. Always got to tailor, tailor it for the audience. Mm -hmm. So what has been the reaction to this play? This is a play that I thought three groups in America might be interested in, <laughs> all right? Because, it's you know, there are a lot of people interested in trans issues. There's a lot of people interested in faith issues. But trans faith issues, mm -hmm. I just didn't think there would be a lot of people. I mean, there are some really great trans faith groups. There's, you know, Trans Faith Online and, and a bunch of others. But I was so wrong. I don't mind being wrong about this one. <laughs> because people, all kinds of people, Bible scholars in particular, um, straight people, non-trans people, all kinds of people, gay and lesbians, they have been so taken by this play. Now, it is quite different from my other work. You know, I mostly do comedy. Mm -hmm. And this definitely has comic elements in it. But it's much more centered and um, meditative in a lot of ways. It's, it's like a meditation on gender and the body and body image, things that apply to so many of us who don't always feel at home in our bodies. Yeah. And I have done, I just did a performance in Seattle, uh, Reconciling Ministries of the Pacific Northwest, uh, United Methodists. They had a whole day-long conference just about trans issues, and they started the day with my play and I heard people openly weeping wow. as I was performing they were so moved by these stories and it's been great for me I mean it's been a great um, as an artist uh, I, I take stretches there I'm playing not only multiple characters but multiple genders and doing things with my body that I've not done before as an actor so it's it's been really great but the, the response has been phenomenal I'm, I'm booked up through the fall at this point um, and the, the bookings just keep coming people just want to see it that's fabulous. Were you hoping that people take away from this as, as a message? A couple things, because there's a couple different audiences here. Um, for one, there's a gay and lesbian audience that, um, for the most part, when we've been talking about inclusion, it's been a lot about just gay and lesbian to the exclusion of bisexuals and transgender folks. Mm -hmm. And so I think it helps to do a little social justice within our own group of saying there are others of us that are not being widely represented 
and included. And so I think that's just kind of eye-opening, and I think it's just important, particularly with the um, you know post and uh, um, looking at our organizations, where you know how inclusive are we? Is the T simply an accessory, or is mm-hmm. it something that you know we really are inclusive of transgender folks, and do we have trans folks on our boards and on our staff and and that sort of thing? What I hope for people who are still not committed to the full inclusion of LGBT people is that in seeing the play, two things will happen. One, they will um, be taken in by stories that are about sexual minorities, but not about sex. And I say that because too often our detractors get distracted by sex. They'll hear gay and lesbian, and they're immediately, they go to a sex act. Now, if I was only gay when I ever had a sex act, I would hardly ever be gay, okay? (laughs) But they don't know that, you know? They don't understand it's about identity. Um, It's simply an act. But suddenly we're not talking about sex. We're talking about an identity. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how people express themselves. And I've had people from, you know, even uh, Zambia and South Africa that I know who have been pretty much very clearly anti-gay suddenly say, oh, my gosh, you just reminded me of this woman in my village that was growing up. Well, it was a man, but mm-hmm. acted as a woman. And she didn't, wasn't exposed to television. This was natural to her. Mm-hmm. So there's this link that people can make that this is natural. The other thing I hope will happen is they will see that they've been overlooking some very important stories that are right in front of their eyes. And that if they see that they've been overlooking these stories, they may think, ah, what else am I overlooking? What other filters have I had on? And, and I had the, a straight Bible scholar from Howard University come to the play, and he said, you know, that he was able to look at the, stere- the stereotypes that he had and how he brings them to biblical interpretation, and that by seeing the play, it helped him to see he had these stereotypes that hmm. he needed to, to challenge. So what's on your plate next? Well, I um, will be traveling with the play at a lot of universities. I'm hoping to get into a lot of seminaries because I think that's where it needs to to be for sure. I have a tour of Europe uh, in uh, May and June for about six weeks where I'll be um, doing this play for a lot of different venues, including going to Cologne, Germany um, for the MCC there and a trans group. And I've begun working on another play about Abraham, and uh, unlike my other plays, this will actually be two actors playing multiple roles instead of one actor playing multiple roles. <laughs> Give yourself a break. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm actually moving a lot away from the ex-gay work. I mean, I think it's really important, but there are so many people now who do it. There are so many ex-gay survivors stepping forward and people who are so great at analyzing this stuff that I'm not as needed as I was mm-hmm. you know, six years ago when I first premiered the play so that I can step back and then focus on other issues. And, and, and gender and trans issues in particular is something that I feel very, very passionate about. For more information on Peterson Toscano and his work, visit his website, Peterson Toscano. That's Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, Toscano, T-O-S-C-A-N-O.com. And we 
round out our Godcast with a little holy humor. After a long and boring sermon, the parishioners filed out of the church saying nothing to the preacher. Toward the end of the line was a thoughtful person who always commented on the sermons. Pastor, today your sermon reminded me of the peace and love of God. The pastor was thrilled. No one has ever said anything like that about my preaching before. Tell me why. Well, said the man, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding, and the love of God because it endured forever. Thank you so much for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at the blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kearley. Other music included samples from Sun Palace, Jeff Wall, and John Jackson, all available from magnatune.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverins in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take money to produce and broadcast this program, and of course to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for more than a decade. You can donate by credit card by going to our website, whosoever.org slash donate, or you can send us checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina 29021. Remember, whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit, that means all donations are tax deductible. Thank you for listening. May God bless you and keep you until we meet again.